0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're getting ready to celebrate Hanukkah, and um, I've been thinking about a lot of things, and uh, about light, and about Hashem's closeness, about uh, feelings of uh, just just what this world sort of evokes in us, which is just a, a, a sense of alienation and abandonment, and how all these things combine light and darkness and, and all the rest. So let's try to put them all together in sort of a, maybe a... A sort of a, a comprehensive way, God willing, in in a way that we'll be able to maybe reframe a little bit and and get a better sense of just what's going on moment by moment in in terms of our lives, in terms of the world, and um, maybe a deeper appreciation, God willing, of, of God's closeness. So, so uh, let's just begin with just a couple of thoughts of Hanukkah, and then we're gonna go we'll we'll, we'll, we'll develop the theme, and 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 you should know that. Um, there's a quote I, I, I don't know who said it someone someone very uh, illustrious but um, which is that the 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 Jews are just like everyone else but only more so so <laughs> that's I always I always like that quote because it's sort of like we we tend to experience highs higher and lows lower and 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 things like this so so you should know when, in, the reason why I'm bringing that up is when we talk about the holidays you know. Um, the holidays basically are sort of like the, the, the headquarters or the capital of a certain type of energy. But that energy is all year round. So really it's Hanukkah all year round, it's Pesach all year round, it's Rosh Hashanah all year round, it's Yom Kippur all year round. But then there are certain unique aspects about the holiday by being sort of like the, the, the point where that idea radiates throughout the, 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 the calendar, that there are certain extra additional opportunities to achieve within that sphere But really what we're talking about is always going on. So a way to understand it, if you want a visualization of of what I just said, is you know, I think we've all seen this, um, which is uh, a drawing of uh, white light going into a prism, and then it comes out and it's separated into the spectrum of different shades of light, the colors of the rainbow, right? So basically all of reality, um, God's light, if you will, contains all of these ideas, and then they refract through time and space, the prism being sort of like time and space, or the calendar, or however you want to say it, and then it sort of gets distilled into different separate ideas, and separate headquarters where those ideas land. But you understand that we're amidst that white light all the time, where all of these ideas are relevant all the time, okay? So the reason why I'm taking special pains to say this is because I really want you to understand the universality of everything that we're going to talk about today and not just say oh that's a hanukkah idea. No it's it's an all the time idea. But but we're just going to bring it out right now. So Hanukkah is really is really interesting because it's um, it's the rededication of the Beis HaMikdash the holy temple in Jerusalem. Meaning to say it's not A holiday celebrating the building of the Beis HaMikdash. That's very interesting if you think about it. Because we don't really have a holiday celebrating the building of either the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash. We know the dates when they happened. But even the Mishkan, which was built on um, or dedicated, finished on the first day of Nisan, we don't have a, a calendar holiday. You know, we don't take off from work, we don't like candles, we don't... There isn't a, a festive meal that's mandated, or anything like that, really. We mark the occasion, we go, oh wow, this today was the day that the Mishkan was, was finished, you know? Um, when, when the first space of Migdash was built, the first holy temple by King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, they actually didn't fast that Yom Kippur. It was an amazing thing. They ate that Yom Kippur, they celebrated that Yom Kippur, the only time in history that the Jewish people en masse didn't observe Yom Kippur in that way, which is a mitzvah der Risa. It's a, it's a Torah mitzvah to, to fast on that day. So, but nonetheless, you don't see on an ongoing calendar basis the, the, the marking of the completion of the first base of Migdash as a separate holiday in the calendar. So what is interesting here is that we do see a holiday, for the rededication of the second base Migdash. <laughs> so that's like a little bit weird if you think about it, because it's not—it wasn't the first one, and all the authorities, including the Gemara, the Talmud, say that the second base Mi'gdash wasn't on the level of the first base Mi'kdash. right? And now this isn't even the dedication of the second base Mi'kdash. this is the rededication of the second base Mi'kdash. So about as minor a entry point as you can get into this whole concept of holy temple is where we're entering into Hanukkah. Again, it's not the Mishkan, which was the prototype of it all. It's not the first base of Migdash. It's not the second base of Migdash. It's the rededication of the second base of Migdash. Okay, so what's going on? Why, are we taking, why am I taking pains to spell out this, this idea? It's because we're celebrating the story in the middle of the story and I think that that's a lot of what the what the reframing and what the whole idea of the celebration of Hanukkah is all about I'll, I'll explain better. Rabbi Freeman said something very striking uh, I thought to me anyway yesterday. he said, you know when when the when they would light the menorah, and I'm not talking about a Hanukkah now, lighting the menorah was a part of the avoda, part of the the holy work of the Jewish people every single day, right? When they would light the menorah, um, they would do it during the daytime. So that's okay. Wait a second. You know, let's just sit on that thought for a second. Normally speaking, when you light a candle, you light it at night because right? it's dark and you light a candle, so you, you light it at night. They would light it in the temple during the daytime. So, if we're sort of like recreating, like we say that when we light the menorah, it's like we're all on the level of kahanim, right? And, and our house is like elevated to the level of like the Beis Hamigdash because it's sort of like we have the menorah in our house. It's an amazing thing, Right? So why don't we do it the way they did it in the Beis HaMikdash and light it during the daytime? Because the point is not to light up the darkness. The point is to show that the light has never gone away, even when it looks like it's dark outside. That's why the halacha, very interestingly, is you're not allowed to use the light of the menorah for mundane things. In other words, it's not supposed to be like a lamp in the darkness. You know, interestingly, one of the reasons, and there's all sorts of mystical, amazing, mind-blowing reasons why women light candles or even men Friday Friday night, right? If you're not married, you light candles Friday night. A lot of men don't know that. Um, With a brucha. So, uh, or if your wife is out of town, then you would light candles that Friday night in your house. So, so, and that goes back to Chava, right? Because Chava, when she, she was the first one to eat from the tree of knowledge, that diminished the light in the world. So now women are increasing the, the amount of light in the world, men too, right? So that's, that's a, a more mystical take on, on the Friday night candles. A more mundane take on it that the Gemara mentions is, is that back in the day when we didn't have electricity, Right? if there was no light in the house, people were going to bump into each other and start fights. (laughs) So, (laughs) you needed some light so we wouldn't fight. (laughs) Not only that, but they say that the main enjoyment of food, this is, again, the Gemara, is actually looking at the food. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there's a word that if you're you're fancy and you watch these uh, Food Network shows, you probably know, but I like this word, plating. Have you heard this word? So that's how, how you present the food on the plate. That's called plating. And that's a lot of the experience of the meal, is how it's presented. Right? So, um, so, so another reason why we uh, have Shabbos lights right? I'm just talking about light in general, light in darkness. That's the, we're not talking about Chavez now, we're still talking about Hanukkah, but just trying to tell you about the utility of having light in darkness on a practical level, is so that we should appreciate the food that we're having on Friday night, so that we can see it, okay? Imagine if you went to a super fancy restaurant, like really, you know, like a super fancy restaurant, and they, you were blindfolded. <laughs> Imagine how much less you would enjoy it, right? You know? So, so, interestingly, so then you would say to me, okay, so then when you light, since we see all these great things come from light in the darkness, shalom bias, you're not fighting with each other, you're able to see everything around you and appreciate and everything like that, so we should have lots of light so that we can really use them. So the halakha is, no, you're not allowed to use that light. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, What? It seems so counterintuitive. So then, okay, so then if, we're not gonna, if, if we don't need to light up the darkness, so then let's light during the daytime. Because you don't need any light during the daytime. So then let's light during the daytime. You don't have any concern about misusing the light, right? Because you won't use it for mundane reasons. But that's not the point. The point is, is that we're not just lighting up the darkness, we're showing that even in the darkness there was always light. And now let's get back to what we were talking about before, and now it will start to make more sense why I wanted to dwell on it so much. The whole idea that we're celebrating the rededication of the Besa You see, a lot of people think, when they think about the creation of the world, they think, okay, there was all darkness, and then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. But that the starting point of creation is darkness and then comes light. But that's not true. The starting point of creation is that God exists, and that God existed before the world existed, and that God is one of the many names of, of for God um, amongst the you know the uh the, the, the Torah understanding, each focusing on a different aspect of the one true God, is, is the or in sof, light without end. So, so God, the world begins with or, with endless light. That is the starting point of the world, is endless light. And then God creates this world where temporarily there's this darkness, and then He ushers in an aspect of His light. So, in other words... When we're, talking about, when we're talking about light and everything like that, when we're talking about the light that's in this world, we're already, like when we're talking about "vayahi or, let there be light, the initial words of light coming into this world, we're already in the middle of the story. <laughs> because that light comes from an earlier light before the world was even created. Now with that in mind, understand the following... Hanukkah happens on the 25th day of Kislev, right? The Hebrew month of Kislev. If you look in, because everything is contained in the Torah, all of history, all of future history, everything is contained in the Torah. If you begin with Breshis, the very first word of the Torah, right? With beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. And you count 25 words, 25, because Hanukkah is on the 25th day of Kislev. The 25th word of the Torah, is or, is light. And not just any mention of light. The mention of light. he or, let there be light. So that light of Hanukkah, that light of Hanukkah isn't the first light of creation because we had the light of creation before the world was even created. And the base migdash that's why it's the rededication of the Beis Hamigdash. Because this is, shows on an ongoing process. All of us, we believe in reincarnation. All of us are in the middle of who knows how many lifetimes. And it never ends. Because God is infinite. So, I want to go Further into this idea. The idea being again that the light of Hanukkah is showing us that the light is always there and it never goes away, that we're never alone, that we're never alone, that God is always there, that God never leaves us. And when is the time when we need to know this idea the most? When it's darkest outside. When it's darkest in our lives, that's when we need to know that God is momish there. Right? And not just he's there so so I can use him, basically. It's deeper than that. It's not just like, okay, there's a light so I can use it. No. No, don't use it for anything mundane. (laughs) Like, just, you know, have you ever been in a conversation where it's like, someone says something, and then you just like, continue the conversation, but wait a second, that was... you could dwell on that point, you know, forever. I, I had an interesting experience. Gadaya Fleers is in town, and he, he, he did this exercise with us. He said, everyone should close their eyes, and think of a moment where of their mother's love for them. Right? And he's saying, assuming that you don't have this like hate relationship with your mother, you know what I mean? Like... So, you know, that, that you have a normal relationship. You know, and and so everyone closed their eyes and, and just thought of something. I thought of something, too. And he said, most likely, what you thought of was something was a very, very simple moment. A very, very simple moment. You know? I, I, I flashed on this moment where I was reading this book, and my mother came over to me while I was sitting in the chair, and she... You know, she just was expressing love for me. I mean, that was so simple. She wasn't like, like I was caught under the wheel of a bus and she lifted the bus and I crawled from underneath it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, mom, you know? I mean, it was like, and and that's, that's the, he was saying that that's the reason why there's so much beauty to the idea that it's so common and normal is because that's the distillation of of all of it, meaning that's the feeling that runs through everything, and that helped me to to answer something, um, which is that something that sort of like a, sort of like vexes me, confounds me, you know, which is a lot of times I'll, I'll hear people speak lovingly, by the way about, say, a, des- a deceased parent, or they want to describe the parent to someone, or maybe it will be at some sort of event marking the- their yurt site or anniversary of-, of their passing, or whatever it is, and they'll say, um, <clears throat> the- basically, they'll talk for two minutes or one minute, or they'll use just a couple of adjectives. Oh, he had a great sense of humor. You know, This person was 90 years old. (laughs) They slogged through 90 years of life, and that's the best you can do? He had a great sense of humor? Like, how depressing? How depressing is that, you know? But if you understand what Rabbi Fleer was saying, is that, no, 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 when people use words like this, it's, it's, it's a distillation. It's a distillation of something that just ran through their entire lives. If they talk about a particular event, it's not like, okay, they did something great, you know, January 12th, 1957. That, that's not it. You know, amidst 90 years. That's not it. It's like that was symbolic of what they were doing all of the time. Right? This is just a handle on, on accessing who they were, what they were. So... Hashem tells us to light the candles in the darkness, but not to use that for so that we can, you know, sweep the floor or whatever it is. To understand that that the darkness is just the middle of the story. That it all began with light and that the light has never gone away and the light is still there in the darkness. And that that's a very, very important message because it was coming at a time when we as a Jewish people were facing certain destruction. I mean, we were we were a small band of fighters up against, at that point, the world's greatest superpower. You know, every age, you have to think, um, you know, like when Shlomo Melech, when King Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. So, so that's very deep. And... Um, You have to understand that people throughout history, everything is relative. That when they looked at an army that was composed of elephants, and they're on their foot, that's no different from up against these tanks or against these cruise missiles. In other words, whatever mental space you have in your brain for, they've got something that's going to wipe us out... (laughs) which is just how the brain is organized. It doesn't really matter what the details are. <laughs> if it's an elephant, and you're convinced that they're just going to stompede on your house and crush you and step on you, and you've got, you can throw all the arrows that you like into the elephant, it's not going to stop the elephant, then that's, then that's a cruise missile. Then that's a formula for hopelessness. It, it doesn't matter what the details are. Human emotions will process the details of the age to fit into that category. So we were up against a hopeless situation. And amidst that hopelessness, God's saying, I never went away. I'm always here. I'm always here. Now... I want to return back to this idea because we're going to develop it further. And to me, this has really been speaking to me and we'll get a, a, maybe, God willing, an even deeper appreciation of God's closeness and also of, of the light of Hanukkah. So, so I want to contrast two things, which is the receding horizon and the asymptote. And we'll explain what that means again. But, but let's, let's contrast these two things. And what I'm trying to do is just to set up a model in, in, our, in our minds, which is there is an objective reality, which is the way things actually are, the truth, the reality of the situation, and then there's the way that we operate within the reality, how we perceive the reality. So if you want to get a little bit fancy, you'll call the way things really are, they call that objective reality. That's what it is. Then you've got the way that you're perceiving them, the way that you understand them, and you're going through life properly or improperly interpreting or misinterpreting what's around you. That's called subjective reality, because it kind of just kind of depends on how much you know or what your emotions are and things like that, okay? So, obviously, we want to be in a case where the two are aligned. Because you want to actually be living in reality. That's, that's the ideal, right? Um, so, so, let's contrast these two things. You have a receding horizon. And you have this thing called an asymptote, which we'll describe in a, in a, in a second. So, what's, what's the receding horizon? So, so, if you stand on the beach and you look out at the water you'll see a point where the sky touches the ocean, and it's a line. And that line is called the horizon. And you can have it in other instances also, like if you're standing in the middle of the desert, say. Like sometimes they have pictures of like a long road in the desert, and you see the desert all of a sudden ends, basically where the road ends, where the sky meets the road, right? That line is called the horizon, okay? So using the example of the ocean again, Imagine you go, wow, the sky is touching the ocean. That's so amazing. I'm going to go to that place where the sky touches the ocean. So you start swimming, but it gets further and further away. And you go, oh, I know why, because I'm not going fast enough. Right? So you get into a motorboat, and you speed toward it, and the same thing happens. It keeps on getting further and further away. Now, by the way, just historically, what's sort of just a historical footnote is, That's where um, the whole concept of the flat earth comes from, because people thought there was an edge to the earth, and sailors could sail over the cliff of the earth, right? That's where it comes from. So it was kind of based on, now it sounds so primitive, but it was pretty logical then. There's a line there, that's the edge of the earth, and you could fall off the earth. Why not? I mean, it makes sense to me, except it's not true. That would be an example of subjective reality <laughs> as opposed to objective reality. Objective reality is that the earth is actually round and you can't fall off the earth. Okay? So, so because of the earth's roundness and just, just that, that degree of curvature, there's an illusion that's created where it looks like the sky is touching the earth. But it's not, it's not the case. So you can run and run and run and run and run and never catch it. Now, there's another example, which sounds very similar, but you'll see is actually very, very different. And if you remember back to geometry, there's something called an asymptote. This is a a type of curve on a graph where you have like the the x-axis and you have the y-axis and you have a curve that comes very close to touching the line of the axis, right? Like the horizon, if you will. But it actually never touches it. It never it gets infinitely close and it never stops getting close, but it never actually touches the line So so you could say oh wow, so they're the same thing Both never actually reach that line. You never reach the line of the horizon because it's a receding horizon And asymptote is the same thing. It seems to be getting closer and closer to the line But it never touches the line. It's the same thing It's not the same thing. They're, They're actually opposites They're opposites. And so why am I telling you these things? Because to me, it feels like a very important idea in terms of serving God. You see, there's an essential truth, at least as far as our perception of godliness goes, which which is that because of God's infinity, Ultimately, we can never catch him. Now, because we're finite, because we're an aspect, that we're a creation of his. So, is that bad news, or is that good news? So, that's, to me, I'm saying this as just a fact, but I'm also saying it as actually good news. Because God is infinite. That means that God is never ever ending. And the degree of closeness that we can get, and renewal, and elevation, and refinement is also never ending. Because we exist within God, and we can just go higher and 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 higher, and, higher and, and, and it never stops. And it's never not new. Right? Because of God's infinity and ever-increasing holiness, as you rise, you experience new levels of of, of wonderment and amazement and yira and ava and closeness. It's awesome. And it never ends. It never ends precisely because of the fact that God is infinite and we're a creation of His. You see, let me put it to you another way. You say... God says to Moshe, no one can see my face and live. What does that mean? That means that God says, only I'm God. If you could see my face, then that means, in other words, if you could see the totality of my existence, if you could see the entire world through my eyes as I see the entire world, then you would be me. (laughs) No one can see my face and live. Because then you wouldn't be you anymore, you would be me. So so even the angels who have a quantum degree, quantumly higher degree of closeness and, and spirituality than we do, they themselves ask, where is the place of his glory? Meaning to say that even angels, so to speak, are creations like us and have parameters around them because they're creations. And even them are finite compared to God, who's infinite. Right? Bless you. This lack of closure, if you will, is one of the driving aspects of all of creation. This is like the engine, if you will, of almost all of creation. And I don't know if I shared it with you, but it was a thought that when, when, it, when I got it, it just kind of blew me away. It so kind of blows me away. Is that... You know, the Torah, the five books themselves are sort of a microcosm of, of everything, of like just God's mind, if you will. We say, Zohar says God and the Torah are one, right? So, so if you can understand the five books, I mean, you're really, you are seeing God's face, so to speak, you know? But what, what, is, how does, what is the main storyline of the five books? It's the Jewish people going into the land of Israel. Isn't it interesting that the five books end with the Jewish people never getting into the land of Israel? <laughs> that's the entire story of the Torah. If you have to boil it down into one sentence, that's the story of the Torah. Why do we never get into Israel? By the way, that does happen in the sixth book, but that's not the, that's not the Chumash. That's already on a different level of, of Kedusha. This is the five books are on a higher level. Nothing touches that. We never get in. Why? Because there is no closure. (laughs) There is no closure. It will always be the finite chasing the infinite. So now you could say, extremely incorrectly, so I'm just chasing after a receding horizon. It's all an illusion. It's all nonsense. Absolutely not. It's the asymptote. You're getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And And you never stop getting closer. And every mitzvah that you do, and every prayer that you utter and every act of love that you put out into the world, you're putting light out into the world and you're getting closer to God. And you say, But I'll never catch him. No, you'll never catch him because then you're God. (laughs) It's not a failure. They're a failure, God forbid! It's this it, this exquisite design where we never stop elevating. It's this gift. It's this incredible gift. You know the Kutzker says, "I would never worship a God I understood," <laughs> <laughs> right? Because if you completely understand God, then you're a God. We have a whole category of the mitzvot called hukim. Hukim are mitzvahs that are beyond the rational mind's ability to, to understand. They have to be there. Of course they have to be there. Because the mitzvahs are a reflection of the dynamics of the world. What a gift that God gives us this tool of the mitzvot where we can travel to a place where our rational mind stops and then we can go beyond it. And people who don't understand, unlearned people say, oh, unless you can explain it to me, then, uh. No, I, I want to do stuff I don't understand because I want to go to that place which is beyond me as well. I don't want to just stay in my Dalidamos, my limited personal space. I want to be able to transcend. So now, let's go deeper. So the Ramban says famously that the Torah is black fire on white fire. Okay? And remember, fire is light. Right? We're still talking about Hanukkah. Fire is light. The Torah is black fire on white fire. So what does that mean? So again, the black fire... No one should ever think that the, that the white of the Torah scroll is just parchment or paper, like just a place to put the ink. It's black fire on white fire. The black fire is the revealed aspects of the world, right? Because if it's black fire, you can read it, right? You, it, it's apparent. You can see it. You can understand it. Or you can try to understand it. Then you've got the white fire. The white fire are all those spiritual dimensions that are there that you can't see. But they're there. There's an integrity to it. It exists. Remember, science, math, physics, all talk about now dimensions that exist that we can't see. If you think that that what we're talking about in terms of the white fire is just the realm of religion... You're completely wrong. You you don't know what you're talking about. Walk into any university, you know, and you'll see that universes, beyond what we can see with our eyes, and you have it in biology as well. You have it on the, on on the, you know, on the level of bacteria, right? I mean, do you know what a discovery the microscope was? People were like, there's all this stuff around us. You know, most of the world is composed of stuff that we can't see, (laughs) the great majority of things. They've got something called dark matter. They believe that something like 98% of all of reality, something close to that, is made up of this substance they don't even understand what it is. And this is why we're talking about so authoritatively about, you know, well, there's this and there's that. The bulk of stuff we can't even see. You know, the the, the example that I heard from Reb Shlomo many years ago that always stayed with me was, you imagine you're looking through a, 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 a keyhole and you see someone's raising a knife to, over someone else. And you say, there's a murder about to take place. And what's, what's going on? It's an operating theater. And there's an operation about to take place where the person's life is going to be saved. Right? That's, that's this world. That's, that's, that's the next world. We, we don't know exactly. We don't know exactly. We're seeing a tiny piece, a tiny piece. So, black fire and white fire. Black fire is the aspect that's revealed. White fire is what's there, but it's not not seen by the eye. And like I say, that's most of creation. And if you actually look at a Torah scroll, you'll see most of it is actually white, not black. Now let's go deeper. The halakha is, as I'm sure you all know, if there's a word missing from the Torah, the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. If there's a letter missing from the Torah, the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. If there's part of a letter that's missing of, 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 uh, of a letter, of a single letter, just part of the letter the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. This halakha is less well-known than those. If two letters are touching each other, the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. Now, isn't that interesting? You've got two fully formed, complete letters that are touching each other, so there's nothing missing from the black fire. Nothing missing from the black fire, and yet the entire Torah scroll is not kosher. So what does that tell you? That means that the white fire has to be there. (laughs) That the white fire is not just nothing, the white fire is something. So the actual way the Torah, the the, the halakha is is articulated is that each letter has to be surrounded by the white. Now what does it say? It says every Jew is a letter in the Torah. (laughs) So that means... There's us. And we're surrounded, each and every one of us, is surrounded by white fire. And if it's not there, if it's not there, then it's not kosher. Because you need the presence that there's a concrete thing. You see, now hear this point very carefully. The white fire is not... The absence of something. White fire represents all the things that are there. We just can't see it. Right? So the white fire represents all the spiritual worlds that we exist within that are right there. So there's a concrete aspect to the white fire. The white fire can't be diminished by having two letters touch each other because that which needs to be there is being closed out, isn't present. But that which needs to be there and is a concrete presence in our lives is also that thing which isn't seen. So now let's put these thoughts together. You see, when the asymptote, when that curved line never hits hits the axis, what's between the line and the axis? That's the white fire. That's the presence of God. That's the infinite, which exists beyond our finite ability to hold it completely. Because we're finite and it's infinite. In other words, it's not talking about something that isn't there. It's talking about something that's mommish there. That's absolutely, essentially there. We can never understand everything in our lives But we have to understand different categories for that. Category number one, ignorance. Ignorance must be vanquished. (laughs) You're chayev for your ignorance. You are responsible for not being ignorant. You will be charged if you remain ignorant. Or as Rib Shlomo put it so beautifully, in this generation, it's a criminal offense to be superficial. Right? So... So so, this not, so there's this idea that we can't understand everything. One level, the base level of that is ignorance. That we're responsible for. But then you've got another level, which is just the unknown. <laughs> the unknown is part of our reality. It's never going away because you need the black fire on the white fire. And the white fire can't be diminished. It's part of the blueprint of our reality that there should be an unknown. And it comes logically from the fact that we're finite and God is infinite and we exist within the infinite, which means the unknown is an essential part of our reality. But now we find out that you can't get rid of it. You can't have it. So let's put all, let's smush all the letters together. (laughs) That's the ultimate Torah scroll where we understand everything. Torah says that's not a kosher Torah. Every single letter has to be surrounded with white. Because every single person has to understand that they're never going to fully understand. But that lack of understanding is the presence of the infinite in their lives. When you don't know, of course you don't know because you're standing before God at that moment who's infinite, who's right there, right now, surrounding you. That's the infinity in your life. You don't know? Nice to meet you, says God. (laughs) What's going to be? We're going to find out. (laughs) Welcome to the ride that never ends. It's not the absence of something. It's the presence of the infinite. Why are we lighting the Hanukkah candles at night? Not to light up the darkness. To show that the light never went away. <laughs> to show that the light is always there. So, all of us are letters. All of us are surrounded by the white light. All of us are in touch, are right here with the infinite right now. Right? Because all of us are letters. Right? Right? There's a, a surrounding area between each one of us, right? We're all letters on a page, right? And we're all surrounded, like, here's this room, the, this is the. this is the white light, this is the white fire, this is the parchment that all of us are sitting on. And that unknown is exquisite. That's the exquisite unknown. Because that's the presence of God. That's the infinite. That's the infinity of God. Which we, through God's just total, utter love for us, allows us to dwell within. Okay. Happy
1: Hanukkah.
0: So, it's just so important that that we just get the point of all this is that the unknown in our lives is actually the presence of God. And when we go, I don't know, you say, oh, that's because I'm standing in front of the Infinite One, who's right here, surrounding me. And that's a moment, actually, to connect and to feel a closeness, as opposed to get, getting frustrated or feeling abandoned. Right. And that's going back to what I was saying initially about objective reality and subjective reality, that the objective reality is what's really going on, which is that God is there right now. The subjective reality is thinking, oh, because I don't know what the next thing is or I don't understand my own life, then therefore God is very, very far away. But no, no, that's just that's just us grappling with the unknown. But when we understand that we're finite and God is infinite, we understand that there will always be an unknown, right? Because the Torah itself doesn't end with the Jews getting into Israel. (laughs) The Torah itself ends with the ongoing journey. And the fact that we don't know is is just an invitation from God to experience His infinity at that moment, but also His closeness. Because again, we're letters in the Torah, and the halacha is... That every, remember, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. So whatever is going on in terms of the halakhas of writing a Torah is going on in terms of the whole world in our lives. Every person is a letter, and every letter has to be surrounded by the white, which means that we are being embraced by the infinite, that we are actually being embraced by the unknown, right? But that's, but that's, that's okay, you know? You know, Rabbi Green tells a beautiful story. Um, and then I'll tell you a story also of my own, which is, um, he said when he was a little boy, his, uh, his, I I don't know if it was his mother or his grandmother, you know, it was a very hot day and he, he, she was taking him out and he just, he just didn't have the patience and he was just so tired and it was so hot and she took him to the store and they waited on a really, really long line and then she took him on this bus ride, and he just, he just didn't want to do any of these things, you know. And then they got to this park, and she had bought a whole picnic, and they had arrived at this beautiful place, <laughs> and he was so happy. <laughs> and he just didn't understand while it was going on that the whole thing was being done for him. Right? So that's, that's, that's our lives, right? That's an example of our lives. And I'll just tell you something from my own life. Um, uh, about the naming of my uh, youngest daughter. So we, we named our other kids after people who, uh, you know, were deceased, you know, uh, or there was some other special circumstance. So meaning to say that we had the name ready before the child was born. But our youngest daughter, we didn't have a name prepared. So it was the first time we actually had to choose a name, if you understand because all the other names were sort of given to us, right? So this was a unique challenge, like, how are you going to pick a name? So, um, so we, you know, there's a teaching that says that basically there's a, a level of prophecy that comes when a, a parent names a child, that you get some sort of special insight, and that's what it is. And uh, my wife and I were up late, and we, we just didn't have, there was no inspiration coming to us. And I I was feeling actually abandoned. I remember thinking that that particular word that it's like why isn't God like telling me so to speak you know or inspiring me whatever it is to to know what the what the name is you know. And it was a you know I didn't know. So we had come up with a, two different names and we we didn't know we honestly didn't know, and the naming that you do is by the Torah, which makes sense because if each of us are a letter then then the naming should be by the Torah, right? Because you're naming your letter, if you will. You know what I mean? There should be that correlation. And it got to the point where they're taking the the Torah out of the ark and they're bringing it to the bima, right? To to read it. And then I'm going to... I'm a levy, so I have the second aliyah. So I'm going to come up and I'm going to say the name at that point. And we still don't have the name. <laughs> you know? So I, I run out into the hallway of the shul and I, I call up my wife and she's still in the hospital. And I'm like, well which name do you want it to be? And she's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, let's make it one of these two names. You know, because that's what we had narrowed it down to. And she was like, okay. And I was like, looking in, I, I see him. He's about to put the Torah down on the bima. I said, I got to go. I said, do you trust me? And she says, yes. What do You pick, and then that's going to be it. So I go in, and I decided, because one of the names that we were thinking about was Talia. I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be, Talia, but I didn't know. I wasn't basing it on anything, especially since we weren't naming her after anyone. I never even considered that name, you know, before the last probably 24 hours or something like that. In fact, I'm sure it came from my wife. So, so the word Tal is a, uh, which means do, right? That comes from above. In the in the in the Talmud, it says it comes from like the seventh heaven, basically the highest of the heavens, and it comes, starts above, and it comes down, right? So the word tal appears in the Chumash, in the Torah, but not that many times. Maybe a handful of times, and it's, it doesn't appear that often. And um, it was Parsha's Hazinu, and Parsha's Hazinu is, is a very short Parsha, so especially when you're doing the aliyahs during the week, it's just like a couple of lines, and that's it. Maybe three verses, and that's it. They're very short. So here you. So in other words, here's a word that almost never appears in the Torah. And here's a Parsha where you're reading just the tiniest bit of, of Torah in the, in the Aliyah. So they put the Torah down. And again, I have the second Aliyah. They read the first Aliyah, and it's talking about Ta. It uses the word "ta. <laughs> Here I'm about to name my daughter Talia, and I feel like I've got no confirmation, no sign at all, and the Torah itself is saying, now is the time of Tal. Like right before I go up, Tal. And I just, it was like, I, I almost hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. It was like the greatest affirmation. And and it was also the greatest affirmation because at that moment, and I, and I realized something 12 years later about this story. So I'm going to tell you part two of this story, which is 12 years in coming in one second. But the point is is that amidst my thinking, God had abandoned me, really. He was working with us every step of the way. Every step of the way. And I just didn't have eyes to see it. So now... I go back to this, and I look at the Tal, the passage that says Tal, and it it says Moshe Rabbeinu is comparing the Torah to rain and to dew. Okay? Tal being dew. And, And the question is, will both of them kind of water plants and kind of keep vegetation going? So it seems like a redundant, seems like there's a redundancy there, you know? So, so, Rashi explains, he wants to explain the redundancy, and, and he says that rain is good for most people, but not for everyone, because, um, for instance, a traveler, especially back in the day before they had cement roads, if the roads got muddy, it was a big drag. It's a big drag. Um, so, it's not good for travelers. They, they are not happy when it rains. And if someone has uh, wine, back then, I guess, they would have... And Rashi, by the way, who's explaining this, is someone who was in the wine business. So he knew wine. They would have pits where they would have their wine. And if it rained, it would rain into the wine and it would basically water down the wine. And that wouldn't be great. Okay? He said, but do is good for everyone. So we named her... We named her Tayagital. Gittel, after my grandmother. Gitto is Yiddish for good. <laughs> <laughs> and after Judy's grandmother, who were both named Gittel. So I realized, listen to this. This is like, this is way out. Not only did we, at that moment, did the name that we had selected fit in with the Torah of that single moment, right? But it was the Rashi on that pasuk. <laughs> because Rashi says do is good for everyone and her name is Gito, which means good do <laughs> I mean you can't get anything more it's, a, it's like you know in those movies where you hit a bullseye and then you, you do it again and the second arrow splits the first arrow it's also a bullseye but it's actually split the bullseye so so that's the white fire. That's, 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 that's the black fire within the white fire. That's the black fire thinking that the white fire around you is absence. And then finding out that the white fire around you is actually the presence of God. Okay. Here are some questions and answers. Yeah. Simple
1: question. Um, seems to me about feeling comfortable in the unknown, like starting to feel comfortable in the white fire really yeah. is a primary tool for building a Muna. Yeah. And I think uh, I've thought about that a lot in my life and I think it's like we ask ourselves a lot, you know, how do we build a Muna and suddenly, you know, this that you're teaching it's like, wow, Shem's giving us a lot of opportunity to build a Muna. There's a yeah. lot of downtime yeah. when you're in the unknown. Yes. And all that is primary a Muna building uh, soil, you know? Yeah. So, that's, uh, so that, 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 was, that was amazing. Yeah. Um, and my, my simple question uh, is that you mentioned before that in the time of the temple we light the menorah during, during the day. Um, when was the shift? Because I understand the mitzvah now for us in Hanukkah is light at, at night, right? You yeah. so we can't, we can't use the light like you said before. Right. But when was the shift from okay, now, you know, why not let, let during the day during Hanukkah uh, now?
0: Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that it would burn through the night. But I think, in the temple. But but the lighting was during the day. In other words, that would be when the lighting would take place. And then it would burn through the night. Um, like, for instance, so basically the light would always be burning. But, but the, the initial lighting was during the daytime. Every shul, including right here, you can look, you have what's called the ner tamid, which is the light that doesn't go out. And that is actually um, a reference to the fact that the light in the menorah in the Besa Migdash, because a shul is considered a, a miniature of the Holy Temple. And so that is corresponding to the, the, the light that was always burning because the menorah was always burning. I think that the rabbis instituted, remember, our menorah lighting is 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 it's, it's it's reminiscent of the temple lighting, but it's different. It's different. It doesn't, it's not as we see, it's not exactly parallel since we're lighting at night. But I think that. The the lighting at night is part of what they call pursuing nisa, which is which is publicizing the miracle, because um, you know Chabad puts um, these these uh, menorahs on top of their cars, because the idea is um, that we want the world to, to see that this miracle actually took place that, that that's actually like for instance you don't really see that so often in, in, in other mitzvot that, that you actually that, that advertising it is is the, one of the main aspects of it and so I think that it's an aspect of the advertising of it that we're doing it at night in other <coughs> words so it makes the, the greatest impression um, and uh, also back in the day the the official way of doing it was actually to do it outside your house you know and they do it at, yeah they do yeah. Is there an outside? Is there an outside Outside, and yeah and then they moved it because they felt like it might sort of like arouse you know like attacks and things like that. they moved it to inside the house. so now in a place like America, some people even are putting it outside the house because they feel so that's okay but but Rabbi Freeman said something very interesting. he said that it moved inside the house. So we know the historical reason because we were afraid of attacks and things like that, but on a deeper level, because the darkness has spread so much that it's actually spread inside the house. Yeah. So we actually need it inside the house, and that's 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 very deep, you know so that would be a reason to continue to do it inside the house even even if um societally it, it's it's okay to light outside the house, you know. In other words, make your beachfront, make your, your 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 border there. So, And then it will go out from there. It will go out through the window into the world still.
1: Isn't it preferable yeah. to light um, when it's not too dark, when it's right becoming, it's not really darkness. It's just in the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's why it's supposed to perhaps light right. Right. Well, people are still out
0: in the streets, they say. Well, yeah. i just it's yeah. not
1: really, it's, it's daylight becoming night. It's like mm-hmm. just at that transition. Right so right. that might have a significance also.
0: Because yeah. yeah they, uh, Reb, Reb Shlomo said that while people are still out in the marketplace, meaning he gave a uh, sort of a deep interpretation of that, that while there are people who still don't have a home, that you're lighting, you know, because those are people who aren't in their home. They're still walking around, you know. So while you still have people who haven't found their place yet, they need to see that light.